Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. My name is Space Bivak, and I am recording live from the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting. I am have the pleasure of sitting down again with uh, Dr. Christopher Rickens. He is a professor at Department of Colorado State University, as well as <laughs> many other things. Um, fellow at the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society, uh, mountain climber, author, educator, mentor, and many others. And um, if you all listen to the part one, you can find out uh, a lot about Chris's work and um, and his motivation and his path in getting to where he was, um, to where he has developed these uh, seminal models of attention. But he wanted to come back on the podcast and talk about some of the other stuff he's been working on, um, some of the passions he has, and those are specifically spatial cognition and human automation. And um, Chris, welcome to the podcast once again. Thank you very much, B. It's nice to, to be here again. Um, so there were the two other areas in addition to the really the attention and workload uh, research program I've talked about before that I want to highlight because they're also, you know, I might say, passions of mine in the research field. Um, the first is spatial cognition, particularly in large-scale outdoor spaces. And that interest came as a result of two converging things. My love for the mountains, mountain climbing, exploration, reading about exploring mountains, getting lost, uh, coming going over cliffs and so forth, uh, both reading about it, uh, the Himalayan climbs, but also doing quite a bit myself in terms of uh, kind of large-scale explorations, going off the grid in Colorado and exploring mountains, and some in the Himalayas as well. Um, I got very interested from a personal perspective of maps and this idea of understanding where you are and where the hazards are. In parallel with this, I was working with Sandy Hart at NASA Ames, and the research program there got very concerned with controlled flight into terrain, where a pilot flies a perfectly good aircraft into a mountain with um, disorient based on disorientation of where you are in sort of XYZ space, because we're now talking about vertical hazards, mountains, also weather as well. And how do we support that with the design of better maps and better navigational systems uh, of where the hazards are? Primary hazards being weather, traffic, and uh, terrain. And these two interests kind of dovetailed in the 90s, and we did a lot of work on designing electronic maps. Should the maps be three-dimensional? Should they be perspective? Should they be 2D plan view maps? Should they be vertical situation displays? When does each type of display better serve the pilot for understanding where she is in the airspace with regard to these hazards? And then the interesting thing is there is such an analogy between the three-dimensional problem solving in aviation and the three-dimensional problem solving in climbing. And I really made that link between the two. Uh, both have hazards, both you're fighting against either gravity or weather, and there's a lot of analogies. So I just became extremely interested and did a program of research on the issue of designing uh, display support, situational supports for understanding 
where one is in a three-dimensional space. And it's so interesting now with increasing data visualization where people are now putting data in these three-dimensional, sometimes four-dimensional spaces, and you have the same sorts of issues of getting lost in your data, not knowing where you are, how to travel from one data node to another. So there's a real common um, underlying phenomena of spatial cognition and understanding where you are that I found extremely fascinating. And that seems to bridge uh, your other lines of work of attention and workload as well, right? Your ability Absolutely to does. Yeah. yeah, particularly the attention because there are so many things to attend to. Where am I? Where should I be? Where actually am I going? What are my goals? And these are spatially distributed across in the space. How do we support attention management in these kinds of situations? Yeah. So specifically, what's some of the work that you've been doing on, working on recently in these fields of automation and uh, spatial cognition and maybe the, the bridging of the two? Well, then, so the other area that I've become, and a, a lot of this is because of my interest in aviation and the work I did at the Aviation Research Lab at Illinois, is looking at the general trend towards more and more automated cockpits. And of course, um, and automated aircraft, uh, the issue of the Boeing 737 MAX is you know, came up in the plenary session, an issue where um, automation is not necessarily serving the safety of the human user, at least high levels of automation. Um, similar issues with self-driving cars, other forms of automation, uh, and there are underlying themes here in terms of how far automation should go towards complete autonomy, what's the right level of authority between the human and the automation or AI system that is going to allow the human some relief from performing the task manually, but not so much relief that they're totally out of the loop, become complacent, start doing other tasks at the expense of monitoring the automation. And so that has also been a major focus of interest recently, is looking at the different types of AI or automation support across many of these different domains. What do they have in common about operator engagement, about maintaining situation awareness in the automation process, and about the capability of the humans jumping back into the loop? We have a, a, a little metaphor for our approach to automation, it's called the lumberjack effect. And the lumberjack is the higher the tree, the harder it falls when it falls. And the corresponding uh, with application to automation, the more automation there is, the more aggressive it is, the more it works well when it's working, but the more catastrophic the consequences are, particularly in safety critical environments, when it fails, when you have a, a Tesla accident kind of thing and the sensors are failing to look at, properly assess the situation. And uh, so that's been guiding some of our research recently and how to deal with that problem by making automation more transparent. Mm. And that's a theme <coughs> that pervades a lot of the papers here, the is issue of automation transparency. What is it, how does it, when is it effective, how do we make a person more aware of what aut how automation is working and what it can do. So that is kind of a fourth major thrust of my research and that's one I'm currently very much in involved with.
Yeah, so <coughs> um, Chris had a poster session yesterday, and uh, the lumberjack model was placed on that, and um, that's that's neat. And um, I was wondering if you think you can use this model to, I mean, I don't know if it's a quantitative model, but if you can use that to m optimize perhaps a level of automation such that the benefits are still, the benefits are still um, uh, beneficial, if you will, yet the potential cost is not as catastrophic. And That's exactly where we're at. Where right. is the sweet spot? Yes, the sweet spot. And where is the sweet spot? Because you have these trade-offs. And that's one of the, I think, important issues that models can bring to bear, is they can quantify the factors that go in a trade-off. More automation, reduced workload, a good thing. More automation, reduced situation awareness, a bad thing. Now we're trading off two functions uh, going into the quantitative, if they're both linear functions, then any place along that will work. But if one of the functions is not linear, then there is a sweet spot you can define. And we'd like to try to f help designers figure out where that sweet spot is for their particular application. And uh, what it leads to, we think, is a statement that in safety-critical uh, systems, Full autonomy is not a good idea. And even the, the partial autonomy where all the human is doing is simply observing automation but has no intervention during while automation is operating is probably not a good idea either. And so we're kind of saying, you know, pull back a little bit, uh, give the person some workload in involved in engaging in the system to maintain situation awareness um, in case the infrequent act, um, failures of automation do occur. It's, uh, it's interesting because that's, that seems to be a theme that has been coming up, I find, in this, um, in this meeting. I mean, I was talking to uh, Amy Pritchett yesterday. Mm -hmm. and she has uh, sort of similar, if not more drastic, uh, thoughts on autonomy and the, the giving the, the power back to the human and sort of seems like a little bit of going backwards in a way of all these you know, future thinking companies like Tesla that want to just do full autonomy. And um, and so I guess one of the last questions I have for you today is for the young listeners and the young human factors and ergonomics practitioners coming into the field, um, you know, looking 40, 50, 60 years down the line, do you think that there might be some way of after gaining more literature and research we can design for full autonomy in, in such a way that we can keep the human, you know, in the loop yet not fully tasked or is it... Yeah, it's moving picture? in that condition. I'm not, I'm not terribly good at <laughs> forecasting the future, um, but, uh, or should we say I have a lot of uncertainty in forecasting the future. Um, I, I do think a lot of autonomy is going to continue. I think just we need to be extremely cautious when we're putting full autonomy into, and I will emphasize, safety-critical systems where human lives or also, where the environment is at stake. Uh, you know, humans definitely have their shortcomings, which is why we have automation in the first place, but uh, the responsibility of a monitor, human monitor, I think, is always going to be there. Well, with that, Chris, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll call that a, uh, a wrap. Okay. Um, thank you so much for, again, once again, for coming on the podcast and uh, being eager to come back on the podcast. And uh, hopefully this isn't the last time we, we get to sit down and talk to you and, and perhaps next annual meeting or sometime before that. Um, and 
Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.